Ephesians chapter 1, verses 14, 11 to 14. I'll read it uh, from verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. We have a great God. We have a great God who speaks. As we bring this interlude in our preaching of Ecclesiastes, I want to start by reminding us all that the Bible is the very word of God, is our measure of ultimate truth. We don't judge the truthfulness of what Scripture says against our feelings or according to what makes sense to us. We struggle to read the Bible and to interpret it faithfully. We struggle to believe what it says, and we struggle to reform our thoughts, our thoughts according to what the Bible says to be true. And we struggle to believe what it says. We reform our thoughts. We don't reinterpret the Bible according to an authority above it or outside of it or more authoritative than the Bible itself. So I'm very aware that this, this passage is difficult. It is difficult to fully grasp, and it's difficult to explain. I've been very reliant on prayers, and I thank you for your prayers. Commentaries of faithful men. So I'll, I'll seek to be faithful, not fancy. But use... So as we skip from Ecclesiastes, and we do three messages here to Ephesians, it would be tempting to see these letters written thousands of years apart by different men in very different historical situations. It would be tempting to emphasize differences or to to see them as um, radically disconnected from each other. It's worth noting that God did not dictate the letters to either men. He didn't tell them the, um, you know, he didn't possess them. He didn't overtake them. He didn't cause them to write something that was outside of their character or that they wouldn't recognize as being their own words. And yet, God is the author of both texts. 
God has preserved that word and delivered it to us. And we can listen and, and, and learn from it from one moment to the very next in, in our time. Ecclesiastes has reminded us that we are like a vapor, like the flower of grass here today and gone tomorrow. A generation comes and a generation goes. One man builds and another tears down. Sometimes a man works to build something to pass on to his children, only to find calamity lays his plans in ruins. The message of Ecclesiastes is that one ought to be content with his lot in life. He ought to reverence God and to enjoy the good gifts that God has granted. In this good word from Paul, the curtain is pulled back to give us an eternal perspective. It is true that under the sun a generation comes and a generation goes, but it is also true that God has a purpose to creation. Nothing is left to random chance. And while we have little security under the sun, we have an eternal security in Christ. The average person in Solomon's day did not have much control over the outcomes of his life. The neighboring kingdom invaded. He could lose everything. In Paul's day, people did not have a great deal of control over their own lives either. There wasn't a great deal of personal freedom. He and his whole family could find themselves crushed between powerful people. And in light of recent events, we may feel that we have little influence over our, the outcomes of our own lives. We may feel that we've worked hard our whole lives only to have someone tell us that we are privileged and that what we have must be taken away from us. There's a certain level of comfort in knowing that we, this is not exceptional times. This is not unique to our age. It's not unique to the people of God at this time. When we look at the opening of Paul's letters to the church in and around Ephesians, it should overwhelm us with awe, humble us as creatures, amaze us by God's purpose, calm our fears, and resolve our hearts to rest in Christ. We've heard our, of God's blessing to us. Every blessing, every blessing being chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world, to be adopted as sons of God according to his purpose, to be holy and blameless before him, to the praise of the glory of his grace. We've heard of the means of his redemption by the blood of Christ, not due to any merit in ourselves, but purely because it pleased him to do so, to free us from bondage to sin, to bring his purposes to pass, uniting all things in Christ. Now we revisit re predestination, God bringing his promises to his people, looking forward to the full realization of his purposes. This, uh, as, as Harley pointed out, from 3 to 14 is one big sentence. Sinclair Ferguson says it might be the, that he believes it to be the most magnificent sentence ever written in all time in any language in any place. It's very Trinitarian. Father elects a people, the Son saves a people, and the Spirit effectually calls that same people. Paul gives us not only a sense of God's purpose for his church, but also secures that purpose in the love within the Godhead. In him. Verse 11. 
in him. We start with in him, which is to say in Christ. Paul will go on to explain in chapter 2 that while every human being that was at one time dead in our trespasses and sins, we were made alive together in Christ. We are united in Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That doesn't mean we become part God. We do not gain attributes like omniscience or omnipotence, obviously. Yet we are born again through the power of the Holy Spirit into newness of life, being conformed from one degree of glory to another, even as we are made more into the image of Christ. The God who made all things and sustains all things, who made mankind in his image, stooped into creation and became the very model of humanity upon which humanity was created. When we are born again, we begin being remade into the image of Christ. Paradoxically, rather than becoming more like God, we become more human. We have obtained an inheritance. All right, so here I, I run into my first trouble. On the one hand, most translations are similar to the ESV that says we have obtained an inheritance. Yet the commentaries I consulted unanimously point out that the sense should be we have become an inheritance. We have obtained an inheritance is consistent with the remainder of the sentence and we definitely do receive an inheritance in Christ. Floyd spoke last week about redemption, relating it to being redeemed out of slavery as the Israelites were redeemed from slavery out of Egypt. Paul uses the familiar Exodus story to speak of our redemption from slavery to sin and Satan. To continue that storyline, the Israelites were not simply freed from slavery. They were given an inheritance in Canaan. They were provided homes they did not build in a land that was promised to their fathers. And yet every commentary points out that the Greek word for have obtained an inheritance, how do you like that one word, klirao, is only used here in all the New Testament. The commentaries are consistent in pointing out that the sense is we have become an inheritance. So translators chose to emphasize one sense of that meaning. We have become an inheritance. We have obtained an inheritance while the commentaries choose to emphasize another sense of that phrase, another within the same range of meaning, to say that we have become an inheritance. And so I think that's reasonable because just as the Israelites were called out of Egypt, they were also chosen by God. In Exodus 19, God instructs Moses to tell the people, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For, the, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me 
a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The Old Testament closes with Malachi, including these words, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. And the Lord goes on to promise that there is a day of judgment coming, warning the children of Israel to turn to the Lord, lest he come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. As we look forward, Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter is very clear that this honor is for those who believe. We obtain an inheritance and we become an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. If predestination is not a difficult matter to explain, I don't know what is. There are other difficult passages or difficult concepts like the Trinity. How can God be one, pers- one being and three persons? How can Jesus be truly God and truly man? R.C. Sproul was fond of saying that everyone has a doctrine of predestination. Perhaps you've heard that God looks down the quarter of time and sees who would believe and then he predestinates them to salvation. God's purposes are, not, are simply not contingent on man. Paul, in this same sentence earlier, when, that, that Harley ex- exposited, Paul had used the term, before the foundation of the world. It is my conviction that there are three essential covenants taught in, in Scripture, and they boil down to God's purposes according to the counsel of his own will. You could say that they boil down to one agreement between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The covenant of redemption. So there is the covenant of works. There is the covenant unique to Adam, made with Adam and all of humanity, created in righteousness with the ability to to obey God. Adam and Eve failed that test of of, of probation. They brought sin and death and bondage on all humanity. on all humanity after him. And we may think, well, that's not fair. I didn't do that. And yet Adam was a better man than any of us. Eve was a better woman than any of us. We were perfectly represented in Adam. He did far better than we would have in his place. Humanity was well represented. So it is not unjust for us to inherit the consequences of that original sin. And flowing from that sin are all the sins and depravity and suffering that the world has ever or will ever experience. Any sin you can think of stems as a consequence from that original sin. But there is the covenant of grace promised as far back as Adam and Eve. When they did not die on the day that they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
They were clothed to cover their unrighteousness, and an animal died instead of them. God promised Adam and Eve that a son would be born to defeat Satan, to, to release their children's children from bondage to sin and death and be the means of restored fellowship with God. That promise is continued through Noah, Abraham, Israel, David. There were subservient covenants to that, but that is the umbrella of the covenant of grace. And it culminates in the good news proclaimed when Jesus was born, that there was born that day a baby who would take away the sin of the world, a baby who would grow into Jesus Christ, who would teach the apostles, and who would ultimately, willingly, die on the cross to pay the penalty due for our sins, to pay the ransom and set us free from the penalty of death, as Jesus was raised to life for our justification and has ascended to heaven to intercede on our behalf, to wait until all his enemies are made a footstool for his feet, he will return to execute judgment and consummate the union with his people of all time, the church. Behind these covenants, I'm saying, is the purpose of God according to the counsel of his own will. The purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will before the foundation of the world. This covenant, I believe, is inescapable, necessary inference contained in the Holy Scripture. Covenant of redemption is the agreement of God within the Trinity to create and preside over creation without reservation for the purpose of displaying the love and faithfulness of God for himself. The Father gladly, without reservation, chooses a people to be his possession. The Son gladly, without reservation, chooses to redeem that people, obtaining their possession. The Spirit gladly, without hesitation, chooses to apply salvation to that people, identifying and securing their salvation. The Father doesn't... Jesus doesn't plead for us in front of the Father, and the Father reluctantly forgives us. There's no reluctance in this. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are absolutely united in the purpose of redemption. There is no reluctance on the part of the Spirit to save sinners. There's no, there was no reluctance on the part of Jesus to go to the cross. The Bible says it was for the... the, the the joy that was set before him. I want to I be clear too that there are purposes and there are ultimate purposes. And, and I'll use the analogy of a car on the assembly line. You assemble the pieces on the assembly line to make a car. Um, the purpose of assembling the part is to build the car, but the purpose of, of building a car is to take people from one place to another. So the, 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 the purpose of assembling the car is subservient to the purpose of moving people. The, the, the moving of people from one place to another is so that they can do something in those different places. So even the purpose of building a car is subservient to whatever those people are gonna use the car for.
So we're not talking about purpose A leads to purpose B. We're talking about God's purpose. We're talking about according to the counsel of his will and ultimate purpose. Brothers and sisters, we are the overflow of God's love. Father, Son, and Spirit are worthy of all love and praise and honor and glory. There is no greater object of love, adoration, praise, awe, reverence, amazement, period. It would be inconceivable that God did not love God above all else. It is not narcissism for God to love himself. It is simply right. There is nothing better that God could love. As much as I love you, my family, you are not the center of the universe. We are not the center of God's affections in and of ourselves. The reason the church is the apple of God's eye is because Father, Son, and Spirit love each other and want to show forth that love that we might be the mouthpiece to the praise of his glory. No wonder Paul breaks out into prayer following this sentence. Does it not fill you with adoration and praise for God, the first and best of beings? We move on. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. All right, second difficulty. There's a lot of we's, you's, and ours. Ours is. Ours is? But this is the first qualifier that we have on the we. So the, in him, the we who have obtained an inheritance, I think it's fair to say that is all who are in him from all time and throughout all space. The second we, though, is we who were the first to hope in Christ. Paul is writing, so it must include Paul. So some say he means the apostles. Others say Jewish Christians. There is a consistent progression in Paul's teaching, especially in, you know, wherever he went, he would teach first in the synagogue, then wherever people would hear him. He would get banned from the synagogue and he'd rent uh, a gymnasium or a, a house somewhere close by. In Ephesus, Paul's first conversions were in the synagogue. When he was no longer welcome there, he taught in another facility. There was a, a lot more context within the Jewish community. He didn't have to explain the exodus, the conquest of Canaan, the law, the promises to King David, exile, prophetic expectation of a coming Messiah. And yet, he didn't stop there. He moved on when he was no longer welcome there. And it wasn't every single person who heard in the synagogue who was saved. It was those who were the first to hope in Christ, who were those who the Holy Spirit made able to recognize Jesus Christ in the promises, in the stories of the Old Testament. Seems clear to me that here, we who were the first to hope in Christ, Paul is saying, that's we who were former Jews, ethnic Jews. 
And here, remember that God's election was not based on the worthiness of the children of exile. We read that God's possession that he chose when he elected Israel and called them out in Exodus was that they would be a possession for him in Deuteronomy as they're set to enter into the promised land and conquest. God reminds them through Moses. He instructs Moses to say, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord God set his love upon you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. There is no room for pride in the we who were the first to hope in Christ. Now we come also to, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. This you evidently does not include Paul. It could just be we who believed prior to coming to Ephesus and we preached the gospel and then you who heard it. That, that could be who he's talking to. That it would be reasonable. Ephesians, in the first three chapters especially, makes a progression from, of, of saying that Jew and Gentile have been brought together in one new man. And so I think it is more likely, I'm going to say, because of what Paul reminds them of later, reminds them that they, who were once, who once were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. I think Paul's flow in Ephesians suggests that this is to the, to the Gentile believers. The complete sovereignty and freedom of God may seem to nullify human responsibility, yet here we are. Absolutely affirming and demanding that belief is required. When you heard the word of truth, what is that word of truth? The word of Christ. That God took on human flesh, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial atoning death, was raised to life. This is the word of truth. The gospel of your salvation, it is also the gospel of salvation for the whole world, for anyone who would believe that this salvation was not limited to one region, to one people, but was expanded and was the inflow of all the nations into the people of God. That is the gospel of their salvation. And believed in him. It is absolutely essential that we believe. So we affirm the order 
We, we affirm the responsibility of human action, but not only human action in terms of believing, but we see this, the, the, the human responsibility that it, they must hear the word of truth and they must believe it. So in Romans 10, we have a, we have a good ex- explanation of this. I'll read from verse 8. What does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And now, that's the responsibility of every believer. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. It is our responsibility to believe. It is also our responsibility to proclaim, to send, to support, and to preach. It is not a dead end once you believe. Paul is very clear in his letter to the Romans. How are they to believe? In in him of whom they have never heard. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Every Sunday we pray for our missionaries, we pray and we support them in our prayers, we support them with our giving, but this is, this is why, because we need to be about preaching the word, we need to be sharing that. There are people who need to hear the gospel, there are people here today who need to hear this. We don't control the outcome, we just need to be faithful. That's our responsibility, and that's the limit of our responsibility. Our works are through the power of the Holy Spirit. We exert our own strength. We use our own words. God has a revealed will that is expressed in the moral law. It's a will that is written on the heart of every human being so that no one has any excuse to say back to God, what have you done? may be called the conscience, con, with, and science, knowledge. God's will of decree is called the secret things of God, and they belong to him. And so we trust God, and we rest in his goodness and in his purposes. But there's more, right? In in keeping with the idea, or or in, in paralleling, the, the we who were the first to believe with the in him you also. We want to also affirm that, there, that, that we are not saved 
due to our good works, not even our foreseen good works. Our election is not based on our goodness, but on God's free will. 1 Corinthians 1.26, starting in 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord." Christians who were ethnically or formerly Jews had no grounds for pride. The Christians who were ethnically Greek or Persian or Roman or Ethiopian or whatever ethnicity was living in Ephesus also had no grounds for pride. That continues today. If you are a Christian, it is not because you are smarter, wiser, more powerful or influential. It is because God chose you, period. Why me, Lord? What did I ever do to deserve loving you? Little Johnny Cash. So we have in him, all believers of all time, in all places, have obtained an inheritance. So former Jews who have hoped in the coming Messiah, former Gentiles who have believed the gospel, have have received the Holy Spirit. And we have all who will believe through their testimony, including us. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. The seal on a parchment or an envelope secures the message to ensure that it is not opened by anyone other than the intended recipient, secures the contents. It also validates the contents. The one receiving the letter is assured that it has not been altered. It authenticates the writer, it authenticates, and it claims the recipient, it claims the letter. The seal identifies the one who sent the letter to be sealed with the promised Holy Spirit is to be secured, validated, and claimed. The Holy Spirit applies salvation to us. Initially, it is the Holy Spirit who gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. It is the Holy Spirit who brings the new birth. It is the Holy Spirit who frees us from our bondage to sin. Indeed, it is the Holy Spirit who applies the word of truth to our situation, bringing conviction of sin and repentance unto life. I didn't grow up going to church. I didn't grow up hearing that I was a sinner. I didn't grow up any of that. I thought I was a good person. That sounds silly to some of you guys who have grown up in the church and have heard the gospel so much. But I can say that when the Holy Spirit works in a sinner's life, 
they do come to recognize their sin. And it is, it is shocking. By God's grace, it starts with a dim light. But he reveals things to you. He, he reveals things to us even today that we would rather not see. The Holy Spirit brings us into repentance all the time. But he doesn't leave us in despair. He is also called the comforter. If you are believing in Christ, trusting in his atoning death, living in the hope of eternal life, you are a walking, talking miracle. And the Holy Spirit is your guarantee. The Holy Spirit is your bridge. He convicts you of sin, but he comforts you in the knowledge that you belong to Christ. You have been marked and claimed by Christ, and you belong to him. And nothing, nothing can tear him, can tear you from his hands. The very God who created the heavens and the earth, who sustains the heavens and the earth, the God who said, let there be light, and there was light, has said into your being, let there be life. And there is life. The guarantee of our inheritance, the Holy Spirit, the guarantee of our inheritance. I, I always, it's elsewhere called the earnest, right? To be earnest is to be for real, to be, um, I don't know how else to say it. It's, uh, it's to be in earnest. It's to be absolutely dead serious. If I say I'm going to buy that car and, and I walk away and never come back, then I wasn't in earnest. I wasn't, cert I wasn't clear. I wasn't committed. But the Holy Spirit is a commitment given to us by God that he will complete the work that he began in us is like a down payment, it is a pledge, it is a solemn pledge to deliver the remaining promises at a later date. I'm told this is the custom, the source of our custom of, of, of uh, providing an engagement ring. The, you provide an engagement ring to show the woman that you want to be your wife, that you are serious, that you are committed, and that you are in earnest, that you will marry her. In the first century, the practice of betrothal was a solemn commitment. Joseph could not simply break off the engagement, the betrothal with Mary. He had to divorce her. They weren't yet consummated. It wasn't full marriage. And yet he had to divorce her, and he was going to divorce her quietly. It could be that Joseph saw the significance of marriage and was trying to be as merciful as possible without defiling marriage as a picture of God's relationship to his people. But what can he do when he finds her with child? Of course, we know that that child was Jesus and that it was a miraculous, a miraculous conception that Jesus was, was, that Mary was not unfaithful to Joseph. The point is that we receive the Holy Spirit as a seal, ensuring our ultimate deliverance 
to God in the consummated new heavens and new earth. The church is the bride of Christ. And Jesus has betrothed to us and the guarantee of our inheritance to come is the Holy Spirit. And he will return and he will deliver our inheritance and he will deliver us as an inheritance. The Holy Spirit not only births us anew, but continually identifies us as children of God, provides us with strength and courage when we, when we need it, comforts us in our distress, and leads us into all truth. Through the Spirit, we have union with Christ. We have every spiritual breath blessing. <clears throat> in... Uh, I want to tie the, whole, the promised Holy Spirit to the we, the you, and the our. In John chapter 3, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And he came to Jesus by night. Jesus told him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. He is crucified, he's, he dies, and the, the disciples, the apostles, wait for him, and he says, stay in Jerusalem until you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we get, we get to the day of Pentecost, and Peter connects the outpouring of the Holy Spirit with a shift from promise in the Old Testament to fulfillment in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit came upon the disciples and the apostles, and they spoke in a multitude of languages, and people from all over were, were in, in Jerusalem for the Holy Feast. And they, they, they were kind of mocking them and saying, you guys are drunk. Peter responded, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Peter declares that this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter recaps the history of Israel, showing that Jesus was the promised Messiah, validating his claims by the evidence of the Holy Spirit. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, 
And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Those present who heard and believed, (coughs) repented and were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, and they received the promise of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 8, Philip preaches the good news in Samaria. Peter and John are sent and they lay hands on the Samaritan believers. Okay, pause there. They lay hands on the Samaritan believers that only a few years ago would have been inconceivable. Verse 17, then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is poured out on the Jews. Then it's poured out on the Samaritans. In Acts 10, Peter has a vision that culminates with what God has made clean, do not call common. While Peter is still perplexed about the vision, a group of men come to request that Peter visit Cornelius, a centurion, and Peter was told to go go with them without hesitation. Peter went, preached the good news. Verse 43, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. When Peter was criticized for mixing with Gentiles, he recounted the experience. And even those who opposed him glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Finally, we get to to the praise of his glory. So you have we who are the first to hope. We have you also. We have the progression. We have the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. We have the promise of the Holy Spirit delivered to all who would be in Christ as the guarantee of an inheritance. To the praise of his glory, the goodness of God, his majesty, power, justice, mercy, knowledge, immutability, sovereignty, ought to fill us with humble adoration. God is the owner of all things. Every particle in the cosmos ought to praise God. In in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar is a great king and and he's warned by Daniel, you know, be humble before God and he isn't. He's walking on the top of one of his buildings and he says, look at all these great things that I've done. And immediately God takes away his sense and he lives as a as a animal in the fields rain falling on him he doesn't cut his fingernails or anything has to be cared for when his reason returned this is what he says at the end of days I Nebuchadnezzar lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heavens. 
host of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand, or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. But now he's humble. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and, all, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. God is the only sufficient ultimate object of all praise, whether from his creatures, his creation in heaven, or on earth, or within the Godhead. God is the source of all ultimate truth. He is the source of all power, all dominion, all wisdom, all goodness, all justice, all mercy. We dare not judge God by any standard of worldly goodness, justice, fairness, or any other standard. He is not subject to us or to anything in creation. He is the Lord Most High. His name is above all names. His name is above all names in heaven or on earth, in this age or in the age to come. There will come a time when every knee will bow before King Jesus and he will judge everyone in righteousness and no one will be able to say to him, what have you done? My friend, if you have not bowed the knee to Jesus, I pray that the Holy Spirit would regenerate you here and now. I pray that your eyes would be opened. I pray that your eyes would be opened to see his beauty, to see his goodness, to see his worthiness, to see your smallness, your humility, your your tininess and insignificance. I don't say this to be rude. I say this because God is great and you are not. I am not. According to scripture, blessing blessing and curse is laid before you again and again and again and again. You know this. Spend your health, your prosperity and power in the here and now for an eternal inheritance of praising the only worthy being. Jesus tells us that there was a king, that the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it because it was of incredible value. It was worth everything that you have. God, being known, being God's inheritance, is worth everything that you have. This is the inheritance that could be yours if you believe and trust in Jesus Christ. Though your sins be as scarlet, Jesus Christ can wash them clean. Though the smallest sin, the very smallest sin, the very most flippant, well, nobody's perfect, is worthy of eternal death. The grace of God is greater still. There is no sin so great 
that God cannot deal with it in Christ, by the blood of Christ. No sin, no shame. You do not have to be worthy to be saved. You only have to trust in the one who is worthy. He is worthy in your place. He lived a perfect life of perfect. He lives a perfect life. Let's be clear. He lives a perfect life of perfect and perpetual obedience on behalf of of his people. He was obedient to the point of death on the cross to bear the shame and punishment that was our due. We, We owed that. We were under the condemnation of God. If you are in him, Christ died to pay the penalty for your sin so that all justice is reconciled. The accounting is zero. It has been applied to your account. You you owe no debt. His perfect obedience puts an infinite balance in your account that nothing you do can add to or subtract from. It's not just zero, and now it's up to you to do the rest. It is an infinite balance. It is based on Christ and his worthiness and his faithfulness. My friend, believe and trust in Jesus today. And don't wait. Don't don't be so proud that you can't ask someone for help in understanding these things. Don't be too shy. It's, It's simple. There's a lot of shy people here. Just ask someone. Believe and trust in Jesus. If you have questions, hey, we'd be happy. There's nothing anybody, any of the elders would like more than to talk to you about Jesus. We don't want to talk about sports or camping or hiking or or any of these things more than we want to talk about Jesus Christ. If you don't have a Bible, we'll get you one. We'll give it to you. Don't be too proud to ask. Dearly beloved, if you have been graciously sealed by the Holy Spirit, you have believed in the gospel of your salvation. You are certain to receive your inheritance because God is faithful to finish what he started. It is God who sanctifies and he will surely do it. Be overwhelmed by his generosity. Be shocked by his mercy. You know your sin far better than I do or anybody else does. And you know the depth of his mercy for you. Be overwhelmed. Be shocked. Fall on your face and worship him. Give everything over to him who is worthy. Will it cost you esteem in the sight of other people? He is worth it. This cost other saints in other days, their livelihoods, their kingdoms, their lives, the lives of their children. God has not let them down. He didn't fail them. God has given them strength and courage to seek his kingdom. And they await the consummation of all things. The summing up of all things in Christ to the praise of his glory. In the new heavens and the new earth, when we are glorified and we stand before God, there won't be any desire of your heart that is not holy and blameless. Do you not, does that not fill you with anticipation that everything that you want 
would be holy and blameless. You can have everything that you want, and what you want will be to praise God, to praise His glory, to understand Him more. This is, this is I believe, the essence of our inheritance, that we would obtain that perfection of holiness and be blameless before God, standing before Him, worshipping Him, knowing Him. So as we transition back to Ecclesiastes, we are reminded of the great evil of a righteous man who worked hard to pass on an inheritance for his children, whose inheritance is wiped out, stolen maybe, not received due to some unforeseen, humanly speaking, tragedy. Solomon calls this a great evil. We live on an uncertain earth humanly speaking. But we have great certainty with God. God will work all things according to the purpose of his will. God promises that ultimately through union with Christ, all things will work together for our good, for the good of those who believe. There is little certainty under the sun. We must look to the sun for eternal security. Let's pray.